Welcome to the Urban Hope Community Church Podcast. Today is January 21st, 2024. Today's sermon is titled, The Spiritual Warfare of Doing Discipleship Among the Urban Poor. From Matthew 28, 16 through 20, Genesis 1, 27, Psalm 139, 13 through 16, and James 1, 26 and 27, from Senior Pastor Alton Hardy. The creator of all things, and we come here today to worship you on this day that you have set apart in eternity past. You've decreed this moment. You saw it before I was born in my mother's womb. I pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would come to this church as you are already here, that you would continue to peruse upon our hearts and our minds and our thoughts, that you bring us as a church to a place where we would put our hands to the plow here fighting here in Fairfield and many of our urban inner cities for the sanctity of human life. Lord, we know that we cannot do this by our own strength, not by our own just grit and will, but by the power of Yahweh, the one who is and was and is to come. The Lion of Judah the great and mighty one, the God who cannot fail. Speak to us. Bless us here today. Break open our hearts here this morning. Make us angry like you are anger. Let us never be the same after today pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we got a lot to come through. Please stand in the reading of God's word. Thank you, praise team. Get my water here. And we're going to title the sermon, as you can see, Spiritual Warfare of Doing Discipleship Among the Urban Poor. And the first scripture that we want to read here today, and I'm just going to read it up on the board because it's too many to turn to. It's Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. So here we go. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Keep going. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold, Yahweh, I am with you always to the end of the age. Next text. So therefore, God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Psalms 139, 13 to 16, for you form my inward parts. 
You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, David says, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. For your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Okay. <laughs> well, we need to put it in there because I need it. James 1.26, turn to me um, if you have your Bible. It's okay, grace is given. Page um, 1199. Here we go. James 1, 26, 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. 27. The religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The grass withers and the flowers fade. Hey, you may be seated. I must prepare you as you can already see, for this message that you're about to hear here today. Because it is the first time in my tenure as a pastor, a senior pastor of any church, especially here at Urban Hope Community Church, where I have personally and actually set aside a sanctity of life sermon in my humble estimation that would address the greatest genocide happening in the poor urban black community. The word genocide means to deliberately killing, the deliberate killing of a large number of people from a particular nation or ethnic group with the aim of destroying that nation or group. I want to warn you that this sermon will be a shock to many of you, Gen Z's and millennials, and maybe a few more of you who are above that. And it will clarify our vision here at Urban Hope Church of leading people out of Egypt. And as Dion has already said, and I think someone else, we are God, we serve a God who's a God of mercy, a God of grace, 
God of great compassion. Um, abortion is not the unpardonable sin, as Anastasia said, shared so eloquently. But it's real. But I want to say this. Um, Urban Hope as a church, it is a gospel church movement that is, that is emerging. First starting here in Fairfield, Crown Zero, as we call Egypt. And then it will proceed to other parts of this city here locally and then to other cities across America as the Lord will lead. And so this is important when I'm going to share it from the rest of here because I want us to understand. Um, um, I can just sense this as I was taking pictures. Um, for some of you, this will be your first time hearing a sermon like this. And we're here in Fairfield. And it's taken God 12 years to get us to this place because if I had preached this years prior, I think most people would have gotten up and walked out because the, the conditions of these environments are so hard knocks Egypt and the domain and the powers of the strongholds have basically have dared any preacher here in these inner cities to preach what I'm about to preach today. And so it's taken God 12 years of hard labor and prayer and discipleship with our elders. We've arrived to this place here today in 2024 in January to preach such a sermon. The spiritual warfare is real. The taskmasters in Egypt are real. Pharaoh put taskmasters over the people. And these taskmasters have been put over the urban inner cities across America in order that the edict from Pharaoh, i.e. Satan, that the genocide of children, both in the womb and outside of the womb, would continue to every emerging generation. A week and a half ago, a five-year-old was shot in the barber chair and not a blink. 15-year-old was shot walking down the street just all this past week. Nothing gets said. Just normal whatever. That's not normal. That's Egypt. Pharaoh's edict is out. But let me keep going. But the word of God is very clear. That human beings, that they are a creation of God. As we read from Genesis, God created human beings in his own image, in his own likeness. And Genesis 1.27 states emphatically that God created man. God created man, human being, in his own image. And in the image of God, he created them. Two genders, male and female. Two genders, male and female. Say it. Two genders, male and female. Two genders, male and female. That's what the word of God says. Not a thousand genders, two. 
You see it in the DNA, in the chromosomes, male and female. This creation of God in his image, this means that human beings, that they have the ability to reason, to think, make decisions as moral, eternal, spirit, soul, persons. That's what it means to be a human. The word of God says he's created male and female in his image with that capacity. The ability to reason, to think, to listen, to make decisions as a moral, eternal, spirit, soul, person. And then the last text I read, well, the second text after that, Job, you can put this up, in Psalm 139, 13 and 16, where David here gets into the creation of a human being in the womb. And verse 13 says, For you form my inward parts. God knitted you and I together. Some of you are pregnant right now, and as you are sleeping at night, I don't know how God does it, as Ken so, um, so gracefully exhorted us with Yahweh, that Yahweh, while you're sleeping, because he never sleeps nor slumber, he's inside of you, and he's creating a, a human being. Knitting him and her together. Putting hair and DNA and and color of eyes and, and the color of your hair that would be before you change it up or add to it. David says, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. And I praise you for I am fearfully and, and wonderfully made. This is a, and the, the creation of a human being is an amazing thing. Only God can create a human being. God knits a human being with a soul together from the time of conception. So we're being told it's not a, a human until it's born. It's not true. From the time of conception, we believe that that's a soul with a spirit, a human being. You can see all of this play itself out can go on YouTube today, and I would encourage you to do so with all the new technology that David didn't have. But he had the Holy Spirit, so that was even better. And you can see this place itself out. And I want Job to put that picture up with the babies and just to kind of give you when it says God knits us together. You can see, starting with six weeks, already a shape of a baby. Six weeks and. And, and, and most of the abortion takes place way beyond that. That's just at six weeks. You already see God forming and shaping a human body in the womb of a mother. And it just goes from there with souls. 
which will have the capacity to think, reason, make decisions, to worship God. You can keep that up, Job. He says in the rest of this text, for you, you're wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret and intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. And in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. The baby in the womb has a unique individuality from the first moments of his or her existence. God knows them, and he has ordained them to do certain things, the psalmist said. You've written my days down in the book before they have come to pass. Things that you wanted me to do. Things that he wanted you to do and want you to do. He wrote it in a book. And I believe God writes down in the book of life all of us to reach our destiny of the promised land. Something that he wanted you to do. I believe with all my heart that I was born for what I'm doing right now. It, doesn't, it has nothing to do with money. You can't pay me enough money to do what I'm doing. This was destiny. This is what God wrote in the book before I came into my mother's womb. I have called out and heard it out of Sardis to be a pastor, a church planter to be a part of planting churches in these urban inner cities. There has no money in the world that can help stop me from doing that. Created for it. But not only me, you as well. It says here, all the days, while he's shaping you, he knows your days. You can take it down, Joe. So this brings me to the issue at hand. Ecclesiastes 1.9 says that there is nothing, and there is nothing new under the sun. Leviticus 18. You can go there. Page 114 in your pew Bible. I want you to see this. There is nothing new under the sun. Leviticus 18. Nothing new under the sun. What has been will be again. Nothing new. Here, Moses writing to the people of God. And it says to them, here in Numbers chapter 18, verses 1 through 3, page 114, your pew Bible. And it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, the people of God, the covenant people of God, that God has brought out of Egypt, He's bringing them out of Egypt. He says, I am the Lord your God, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt. All that stuff that you've seen them do in Egypt. God says, I don't want you following their practices. He says, where you live, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, the promised land where I'm bringing you. Because they were doing some things in the land of Canaan that were not good. So God said, I don't want you to do what you, what you see in Egypt. And I don't want you to do what you will see in the land of Canaan. 
to which I am bringing you, you shall not walk in their statues. You should not walk in their statues. So God says, don't do as they do. Well, what were they doing? Well, we know, as Dion read in Leviticus 20, says, don't offer your children to the gods or to the idols of Moloch. And so I want Job to put up this slide. It's a picture as best I can. And I'm going to read some things to you while you're looking at that picture, but just hear me and look at the same time. Um, this is a good rendition of what we believe that the children of Israel was forbidding, prohibited not to do. You can see people there. And so I'm going to give you some descriptions of what you're seeing there up on the screen. It says, this idol itself had the head of a calf upon a human body. Its arms were extended with the hands open like those of a man who's about to receive something from another. The image was hollow, we must suppose, of metal, and was heated by a fire from within till the hands were glowing, glowing with hot red, meaning it's ready to go. It's ready to cook anything you put on it. Steak, chicken, pork, beef, piglets, deer that Chad likes to kill, any of that. And the priest took the child from his father and laid it in the hands of Molech, where it was burned to death. The priest, meanwhile, violently beating drums that the cries of the victim might not be heard by the father and move his heart. The sacrifices were made to Molech in order to ensure some sort of economic success or prosperity. God's people, the Israelites, they fell prey to this very diabolical sin. In Jeremiah 32, 35, I read it. You don't have to go there. It said, they built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and their daughters to Molech. Though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. God's people fell into this depravity. We keep going. The practice of child sacrifice was not only rampant among the people of Canaan, but was also adopted by their close relatives. The Phoenicians, the descendants of the Canaanites, established places of child sacrifice all over the Mediterranean and even as far as Spain. The killing of children has been with us for a long time. The Egyptians did it, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Moabites. Child sacrifice 
is nothing new. It has been with us for a while. And this child sacrifice in 1973, Roe versus Wade, came to America. A U.S. Supreme Court ruling landmark decision ruled that the Constitution of the United States generally protected a right to have an abortion. Basically, that ruling came down. Many of you were not born. I was only about six years old. It changed the landscape of our country. Our country endorsed legally the endorsing of taking children in those little pictures and killing them as many as you wanted to. Supported by the Constitution of the United States. And since that time, this ancient worship and practice over 63 million babies have been aborted and sacrificed to the God of Molech. Turning the corner. And abortion, some of you may not know this. Abortion is the number one killer of African Americans. I want to read to you an article by a black feminist It says who was too woke for the women's rights movement. You can look this up for yourself. It was in the Washington Times, March 7 of 2022, and it was written by Petrina Mosley and Christian Hawkins. James Hawkins, I don't know if she's related to y'all, but she's, she's in here, and you can look it up. And I'm giving some excerpts from what she says in this article in the Washington Times. She says, late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg acknowledged this fact openly, saying in 2009, frankly, I had thought that at the time Roe was decided, there was concern about population growth, and particularly growth in populations that we don't want to have too many of i.e. African-Americans. Today, it is estimated that as abortion has claimed the lives of 21 million black Americans, black Americans comprise about 13% of the population, but undergo 34% of all the nation's abortions. Many committed by the nation's leading abortion supplier, Planned Parenthood whose death chambers are conveniently located within walking distance of minority communities, nearly 9 in 10. All over the South, Mississippi, Tennessee, Georgia. And she goes on to say, abortion is the number one killer of African Americans. More lives than heart disease, Cancer, violent crimes, or accidents. And that's important. So you can see why it's taken me 12 years to get to this point. Some of you say, I didn't know that. And I always say, Satan is not a dumb angel. Very deceptive. 
they go on to say in this article, the African-Americans are no longer the nation's largest minority group. We used to be. But with those kinds of abortions, we can't sustain growth. And today, Hispanics have outplaced blacks in population growth. And so I knew I had to preach on this, so I texted a friend of mine. He's Terry Gizmer. Some of you may know of him, and I got to move on quickly here. And I say, Terry, um, you work with the abortion uh, um, pro-life industry here in town, and I want to know, um, um, send me some, because um, I didn't have time to do the research, um, what's going on here in Alabama, so let me read it to you. But um, Terry um, Gizmore sent to me in a text message. He says, over two-thirds of Alabama residents abortions, 67% were performed on black women. 67% here in the state alone. 28% were obtained by white women, and 3% were on women of a different race. Race was not reported for 1% of the abortions. The black resident abortion rate is 18.6 abortions per 1,000 women ages 15 to 44, was five times higher than the white abortion rate of 3.7. A majority of the abortions, 91% were performed on unmarried women compared to 7% on married and 2% on women of unknown marital status. He says, this is from the Charlotte Rozier Institute, a very reputable and respected organization. Bless you, my friend and co-laborer, Terry Gensler. So I titled this sermon, Spiritual Warfare Doing Discipleship Among the Urban Poor. The spiritual warfare consists of knowing that we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places, Ephesians 6.12. There's a spiritual battle. And Satan hates churches like Urban Hope in these inner cities that are proclaiming a truth like this today. He doesn't want this message even being touched. Because he knows this is not preached, it's not taught, there's no discipleship happening on the ground that he will continue to kill, steal, and destroy the lives of many children before they even take a breath. So he knows that. These unseen taskmasters lording over the people's minds and blinding them from seeing the truth that these, that these are human beings, these babies, made in the image and likeness of God with eternal souls. He fights against that from the college to the high school. But this is why Jesus, who's resurrected now, and he's about to go sit back to the next to the, hand of the right hand of the Father, 
He says to his disciples who are there at the Mount of Galilee, he got holes in his hand. He says, all power, all authority, I'm Yahweh, I'm God. And he's about to go sit to his father. But he gives this commission to his followers and to us here today. He said, go make disciples of all the nations. Not some nations. This word nations is ethnos or ethne. This word nation means um, it's, it's a certain value systems. And I say to you that inner cities and urban inner cities, that we are a nation within itself with certain value systems and cultural ways of thinking and habits, being indoctrinated with lies surrounding marriage, family, and babies in the wombs. We're being told, as they told Anastasia, that this is not a baby, that this is just some tissue, this is just some sewage. This is not an eternal soul with a mind, with a body that God has a purpose for. This is nothing. But if we can see with the picture, at a six weeks, that this is a human being being intricately woven in the womb of a mother. But from the high school to the colleges and in these urban environments, we're telling these black girls and black men that this is nothing but some tissue. This is not true. But we are called to make disciples and to go into and among the nations. As Jesus says, Teaching them, teaching our young girls, no, you have a baby in your womb as a child with a purpose, with a life. Jesus says, go teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. It's a spiritual battle, my brothers and sisters, one that I've been waiting for a long time here at Urban Hope to preach on. Because it is happening right under our eyes here as we sit in this church today. From the college to the high school, you will be overwhelmed with the killing of children right here in Fairfield alone. We're just talking Fairfield. And part of discipleship, we go make disciples and teach these people. There's a real human person inside of you when that baby was conceived and that they have an eternal soul. I have a book here. You don't have to go get it, but I want to read some excerpts and then I'm going to have a friend of mine come up and we're going to connect the dots. It's called How Christianity Changed the World. I've talked about this book before. This book changed my whole ethos about Christianity and how the impact on the world because sometimes we living here in the 21st century, we can lose sight of this. But second chapter is called The Sanctification of Human Life. And so let me read some excerpts. He says, when in Rome do as the Romans do, so goes the old sand. But when the early Christians arrived in Rome from Jerusalem and parts of Asia Minor, did, they did not do as the pagan Romans did. They defied the entire system of Rome's morality. We should not live like the Romans do or like the Egyptians do. God says, do not follow the Egyptians' practices or the people in Canaan. Jesus says, go into all the world as disciples and make disciples of all the nations and teaching them. 
So the Christians, they heard Jesus. They have the ethos of Jesus. They're being pursued and wooed by the God who has saved them by his amazing grace. And now they come into the world that's totally opposed to their views. But Christians came. They came among the Romans. The Romans, the low view of human life was among the Romans was one of their pagan depravities. The individual was regarded as of value as though it was the end of being to aggrandize the state. Moreover, the pagan gods taught the people no morals, St. Augustine said. So the Romans taught the people there was nothing with these children. Let me keep going. It says, the low value of life among the Romans was a shocking affront to the early Christians who came to Rome with an exalted view of human life. They knew Genesis 1, 26, 27, that God had created all human beings. They knew that. We know that. But maybe the little girl on the street don't know that. This is why we have to disciple them. We have to teach them. We have to open up our mouths and help them understand that life comes from God. They believed that man was made in the image of God. The Christians believed. Now, here's discipleship. As Christians came into Rome, it's called, this chapter is called Countering the Depravity of Infanticide. One way that Christianity underscored the sanctity of human life was in its consistent and active opposition to the widespread of pagan practice of infanticide. Killing newborn infants usually soon after birth Frederick Farrar has noted that the infanticide was infamously universal among the Greeks and the Romans during the early years of Christianity. Infants were killed for various reasons. Those born deformed or physically frail were especially prone to being willfully killed, often by drowning. Some were killed more brutally. For instance, Plutarch said, mentions that the Carthaginians, who says they offer up their own children and those who had no children would buy little ones for, from poor people and cut their throats as if they were so many lambs or young birds. Meanwhile, the mother stood by without a tear or a moan. So common was infanticide, it says, in the Greek world that one guy says he blamed the population decline of ancient Greece on it. Large famines were rare in Greco-Roman society in part because of infanticide, abortion. Infant girls were especially vulnerable. So what did Christians do? That's the world they entered couple of excerpts, and I want to invite my friend up and give a testimony, and then we're going to be done. It says, when Christians arrived in Rome and in its vicinity, they encountered another cultural depraved practice that showed no regard for human life. If, if unwanted infants in the Greco-Roman world were not directly killed, they were frequently abandoned, tossed away, so to speak. And so there, people just threw children down by the river. They didn't care. It was all over the Greco-Roman world. But guess what Christians did? As Christians came into this world, 
they opposed this. They spoke out against it. But they did more than just do that. They condemned it. They spoke out about it. But Christians took these children in. This is where you see orphanages started to develop. They started to do foster care. They did adoption. They took in all of these reformed children all over the Greek or Roman world because they had heard their Lord. Job, and now you can put it up, and I want to get it up. But Christians didn't sit back and just talk about it. They got involved. And so James 1.26 says, and I'll read it to you. It says, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, his person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this. And the Christians took this to heart. This is James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote this. To visit orphans. They took them into the homes. They did what Anastasia and Kiara was talking about. So hear me, I want to, before I invite my friend up, because there's a story that's going to connect to this. I want our church, as you hear this story, I want us to be involved. I want us to say, Jesus, what does it mean to follow you? The Bible says the religion that is true that God looks for, to take care of the orphans and the widows. The black church, I'm on Lifeline's board. We are not involved in the sanctity of pro-life anything. In the foster care system in the state of Alabama, it's majority of black kids. Very few adopt foster care. But the question is why? Why are African Americans not involved in the sanctity of life movement? Why is that just relegated to white people only and conservative whites? Are we not Christians? Do we not love Jesus? Do we not have the same 24 hours of the day? You would say we do, Pastor, but the question I want you to think, but why? Why are we not involved? I want that to change in urban hope. I want that us to say, no, there's nothing special. Christians did this from the beginning of time. They took in these children. And so I want to invite my friend Jeff Clark and his family up. Come on, Jeff. Where's the mic at? And here's a man I met, and I've given him some questions to kind of, um, testing one, um, to, to share. And his heart, um, and so you remember the questions you want me to ask you again? Or you remember? Lead me in. Okay. I remember them, but lead me in. All right. <laughs> so I sent him some questions, and, and I just want you to hear, because I want to book in the story. Jeff is just, first of all, he's just a regular guy. He's not a multi-millionaire, right? And as I know of. Yep, correct. And he could be, but I want to make sure. No. <laughs> no. So let me put up. And so here's the questions I'm going to ask Jeff, and then he can. So, Jeff, uh, the first question is, tell us the makeup of your family, include your job, your house size, care, ministry, and everything, how you started, and your biological children and your adopted children, and how many you have fostered so far in your life. So, All right. Um, first off, just so you know, my entire wardrobe is from Sam's Club. So <laughs> I'm going to make that real clear. Um, so my wife and I, we've been married 25 years. 
Uh, we had our first child. We got married at 23, had our first can child. Can y'all please stand so we can see y'all, yeah. so the stringers can see y'all? Yeah. Uh, so there's my wife, Taryn. And then there's Lila James, Jacob, Peter, and Promise down there. So uh, our oldest is 23. Uh, she was just married December. She just graduated college and got married right here at the end of December. Um, so now I have a 24-year-old son-in-law. Sorry, Jacob, you're not the oldest anymore. Um, but so... She was born at 23, uh, when we were 25, and then in 2005, we were pregnant with our second child, and I believe you mentioned DNC, and man, that, that hit home big time. Um, you saw that picture at 10 weeks, our, that baby died, and at 12 weeks is when we found out there was no heartbeat, and my wife had to have a DNC, and we lost that baby. And then we spent 11 years struggling with infertility, unable to keep a pregnancy. And then finally one day, Lila James. And then it turns out whatever was wrong got fixed. 11 months later, Jacob. <laughs> Two years later, we lost all of our weight. We were back to our uh, wedding weight. And my wife shows up to me crying at work, I'm pregnant. <laughs> Peter, we love you, buddy. <laughs> so... And that's pretty much kind of like, that's, the, that's where that part ends. And then last year, we adopted our first child, uh, Brooklyn, who's in y'all's nursery. She is 27 months old. And we have Beautiful Promise, who is the most amazing third grader you'll ever meet. And we have a 21-month-old, uh, Abby, who's also back here. Um, she... Uh, comes with a special price. She actually was diagnosed with cerebral palsy. Um, she's on the low end scale, really we're, so she's doing really well. You know, therapy's going well, occupational, physical, uh, about to start speech therapy. They'll just say that basically the doctors are like, she's not athletic. So we're really excited about her prognosis. Um, but in all, we've, had, uh, we've been doing foster care for a little over two years, and we've had 15 children come through our home. So I put it here, um, how big is your house? Oh, uh, it was a, it's a 3-2 when we bought it. We've been in it 19 years. We had an unfinished basement. 3-2. Uh, unfinished basement. I want y'all to hear that. <laughs> Millennials on your DG, I want you to really hear that. 3-2. Uh, 15 foster care kids, all the kids. 3-2. I'm going somewhere with this. Keep going. We, we turned the, there was an unfinished little basement room that we turned into a fourth room when our oldest was kind of high school age. And then when we started foster care, we were like, well, we got to do something. So we had this family room downstairs. I took out the fireplace. I put up a wall, put in bunk beds, and the boys moved down there. Uh, my oldest was in college, so took her room. A lot of James took that. And that put the original two bedrooms we had, those basically became foster care bedrooms. Oh, thank you. Um, you're not a multimillionaire, and, um, but in the midst of adopting foster caring, having children. You started a, a nonprofit ministry that works on cars for widows and Yes, God, and moms. God called me and my partner, Mike Jones. Um, he opened our eyes to uh, just the need for auto, automobile repair. But he said, stop, but you got all of that. And I'm serious. I want you, what makes a man married with his beautiful wife? I've had you work on some cars here in our church. Give up weekends and weekdays to go help people, what's moving you to do that, Jeff? 
what was driving this father, this foster caring, loving his wife, raising children, putting them in college. What's, what's driving that? Um, Jesus Christ is who drives it. So I uh, grew up in the church. My mother worked there uh, for 25 years. Uh, I, was, I had a relationship with Christ. Uh, I, did, I never read God's word. I never prayed. I'd tell you I was going to pray for you, but I never did it. I had no clue what was going on, but I looked the part. But when, when I'd go to school, I would be cussing. I was uh, sexually immoral. That's the James 126. But then we, on Sundays and Wednesday nights, I played the part. But at school, I was nasty. I left school. I spent four years in the Marine Corps where I became a professional sinner. I took all of that to the next level. And believe me, that place is where you can do that. And then I came home, and most, most of our marriage, there, there was this underpinning current. It was still there. And then when my wife was 36 years old for the first time in her life, she told someone that her father sexually molested her. And she told me, and our family had to process and deal with that. He also touched our oldest child. And so we had to process and deal with that. And what I did is I walked my family out of the church for eight years. And so for eight years, I didn't consider God. I, I didn't deny him, but I just didn't consider him. I didn't want to think about him. I had nothing to do with him. Then all of a sudden, our oldest child, it was revealed she had a life full of lies. And she was just living for herself, repeating the father's sins. And we spent three days unpacking her lies. And at the end of that, I woke up uh, July 29th, 2020, and I knew I needed God. I could not do this. So I picked up a Bible, and I went outside, and I was going to read the book of James. When I opened it, it opened to Galatians. So I said, all right, Lord, what do you have to say? I started reading, and I got to the sixth verse. And he said, I am amazed at how quickly you turn away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Immediately, my eyes began to water, and I could not see another thing. It was like he just stuck a dagger in my heart. And I couldn't think. Series of events, I knelt before my wife, and the first words was, Jesus is Lord. And I promise to get you back in the church. So now I go back, and now every day I'm just reading God's word. I'm now going to read. I need to know what God wants to tell me. And I read all the way through the New Testament, and he's just convicting me all the way through it. And we're just, you know, we're just, we're just following the Lord. I, and all I'm hearing is obedience, 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 obey, obey, obey. And so I'm starting it again. And come November, my wife says to me, hey, I think we're supposed to do foster care. <laughs> all right. December, my wife says, hey, I think we're supposed to do foster care. All right. <laughs> January, she comes to me and says, hey, I think we're supposed to do foster care. But there was something different about my wife. I, don't, I can't describe it other than that Holy Spirit that we've been talking about. And I said, all right, I'll see what the Lord has to say in the morning. Big fat guess. What book I started reading that next morning in my reading plan? James. And I got to the 27th verse, and he said, pure religion is this, to look after widows and orphans. At this point in time, I understand obedience. I understand sacrificing myself for the Lord. Our yes is on the table. It was not a question. 
That afternoon, we called Lifeline. The next evening, Lifeline had an orientation class. We went to it. Three weeks later, we were in a 10 weeks, three hours a night tips training class. We completed that, and the person who was teaching the class quit, but they only passed one packet on to DHR, and that was ours. September 3rd, baby Dre was placed in our home at three days old, and that was our first placement. We went 168 days without sleeping through the night. I'm sorry. We went 168 days. With All right. So I, I, we had a speed train because I got time. We got nursery in the back. And so here, I want you to land the plane here because yep. I put this is the last one. Make yep. it quick. Hit it. I want because uh, people they're hearing this, and I want you to answer this mm -hmm. for you and your wife. What has been the difference? You're serving God at this point. How would you characterize your your life now? Is there a joy? Are you begrudgingly doing this? How would you explain it? This is the fruits of the spirit. This is love, joy, peace, faith. This is it. This is the true joy. Um, we had uh, not too long ago a four-year-old boy named Ace who is in a foster family that he should not be in. They are not followers of Christ. And when you come to our home, you have the choice. You can either call me Jeff or you can call me dad. That is up to you. Um, and every child chooses to call me dad. So we are dad. We are mom. Ace got the same thing. I'm telling you, when I told him that, his face lit up like a Christmas tree. And he's like, oh, I want to call you dad. But the foster home he's in, he's not allowed to do that. This boy, the, all the kids are down in the, our little play area playing. And when you're in my home, you're going to get hugs from me, you're going to kisses, and you're going to get the words, I love you. This little boy was down there with all of them, and he, uh, he would stop, and he would run, leap into my arms, yell, I love you, Dad, and I'd wrap my arms around him, give him a big hug, kiss him on the cheek, and then with a big old grin, he'd run off, and just before he turned that cutter, he turned back, love you, Dad. Dude, he did that like 10 times in an hour. <laughs> and I say that to say that's all they're yearning for. That's what they need, right? And that is joy. That is unspeakable. Yep. That is uh, us not conforming to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind. That is when Paul says, I urge you, present yourself a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing. You have to ask yourself, everything you do, what is holy, what is pleasing? And that's it. So uh, we, I know the nurse, I can hear him back there. So I have to stop. Thanks, yeah. Jeff. Appreciate it. So, um, Um, I, you can see the preaching in him, and I'm going to get him back to just share a whole testimony, which is, I've told him that when I met him, and he's doing this nonprofit, and, I, and, and you know, I want to end with this, and then Chad, you can get ready to come. Uh, young people, what you just saw, what the word, this is real Christianity. And uh, a lot of what we've heard, listened to the old scenes and all that, is not Christianity. As I talked about that day when we stand in front of him, um, and, you know, and the Lord put this on my heart. I said, Lord, I don't really don't want to say these things. He said, you need to, because they all will stand in front of me, and they need to know. Yep, 
he, he has 24 hours. He doesn't get extra hours. And I say to us as a church, this is an opportunity to let God speak to your heart as we talk about how we get involved. For some, it's foster parents. For some, it's adoptees. Don't be ashamed. Say, hey, sign me up. I need to adopt. I need to be a part of this. So children can know and find true dads and true moms. This is, the, this is, this is basic Christianity, but it's been lost on the African-American church. So, Father, we ask that you would bless what we've heard here today. Speak to our hearts, Lord. If there's guilt, shame, or embarrassment because of we've participated with the lies of the world, I pray you come and salve us with your love and your goodness and to bring us to the place where we fight the good fight of faith, fighting against the lies of Egypt. Bless us now as Pastor Chad comes to get a benediction. It's in your name we pray. Thank you for joining Urban Hope Community Church's podcast with today's sermon titled The Spiritual Warfare of Doing Discipleship Among the Urban Poor from Senior Pastor Alton Hardy. If you need additional resources or more information, please be sure to visit our website at urbanhopecc.com.